Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. Let's follow along this morning. The topic, the Lord will construct the highway of holiness to accommodate pilgrims that are visiting Jerusalem during the 1,000-year kingdom of heaven on earth. The title of our message, Holy Rolling Down the Highway. (laughs) Father, this morning we want to glean from you uh, wonderful, precious nuggets of truth and blessing from the word of God. We declare that we believe Isaiah has something to say to us, even though this was written originally to your people many hundreds of years ago. Lord, your Holy Spirit is going to apply it to our hearts, apply it to our situation so that we understand why it was written in the first place and what it can do to help us as well. No man can do that. Only your spirit can do that. You promised you would send him to teach us. You say that you can discern between the soul and the spirit. That's where you communicate where no one else can. And you encourage us to have ears that hear what the spirit says to us and to the church. And so we claim all of that. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I call him... Peter Parkinson. Peter is a drawing that you see in Parkinson's disease websites. It's an illustration to help you quickly understand the physical symptoms and manifestations of the disease. I'll let you know right now it's not encouraging. Peter is usually an old, balding man. He's stooped over with a cane, Uh, but that's not a symptom. Uh, that's just you're an old stooped over man with no hair. Anyway, then, but then going clockwise around him are written out the description of symptoms. Masked face, speech changes, uh, loss of the sense of smell, forward tilt of the trunk, reduced arm swing, hand tremor, slightly flexed hip and knees, tremors of the legs, flexed elbows and wrists, back rigidity, balance and coordination problems, slowness of movement. So we're going to have a diagnostic go on after church if you'd like to have our opinion as to whether you have Parkinson's. Although I did have an epiphany this morning. It's not in our study, but I was thinking about Moses and when he prayed, because Gino on the tape was talking about prayer and the importance of prayer. Remember how Aaron and her had to hold his arms up? So my tremors aren't that bad now, but when they get really bad, I'm going to have two of the guys come up and hold my hands down. And so, you know, we'll get Pat and Rhett and they can just hold me right here, right? What's the matter with that? I'm handicapped now. I feel weird. You guys, you guys think I'm joking. Anyway, Isaiah. Wait a minute. Where's Isaiah? He similarly illustrated the condition of Israel. They had weak hands and feeble knees. They were fearful hearted. They were blind, deaf, lame, and dumb. Your Bible might say mute. My Bible says dumb. I like that. I'm that way. It's, a, it's, it's an edgy thing. I'll try and say mute because I don't want to offend any dumb people. I didn't mean to say that. Oh. Okay. They were parched and thirsty. Uh, They weren't stupid like I am, but anyway. The Lord ministered to them by directing their gaze to the far future. He let them know that their descendants would inherit the promised kingdom of God on earth. God uses future prophecy to encourage and to edify and to equip us. Is anyone suffering physically or spiritually with weak hands and feeble knees or a fearful heart? Are there any here who remain blind, deaf, lame, and mute to the call of Jesus? Who among us is not parched and thirsty from walking out 
in the desert of this world. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, wherein lies your hope? And number two, where to leads your highway? So wherein lies your hope, verses one through seven. Now these 10 verses, they're pretty uncomplicated. They announce Israel's future enjoyment of their Messiah in the earthly kingdom that God has promised them. Their kingdom promise is unconditional and physical. God made that promise to King David. He said, I will establish your throne forever. He didn't say, if you do this or don't do that. He just said, I'm going to establish your throne forever. There's going to be a kingdom that your descendants rule over. You can get lost in the language of Bible prophecy, I realized. The terms can be strange and, uh, you know, unusual. More often than not, a person or a place or an event has many different names, and you have trouble keeping it together. Uh, or, and sometimes the name isn't even a biblical name. It's just something that people generally call it. Today we're talking about the kingdom of God on earth that follows seven years of tribulation on earth. According to the Revelation, that kingdom of God on earth lasts 1,000 years, so it is also called the millennial kingdom or just the millennium, which is 1,000 years in Latin. And so kingdom of God, kingdom of God on earth, kingdom of heaven, millennium, the 1,000-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom, that's what we're talking about. It is in heaven. It's on the earth. At the return of Jesus Christ or the second coming, Jesus will identify the believing citizens of Gentile nations who survive the tribulation. They will enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies as its first inhabitants, and they will begin to rebuild and repopulate the human race. When God's people were struggling or suffering, he often met the need by revealing their future to them. The church in general has gotten away from that method of encouragement. I think people are afraid that it's not encouraging. Somebody is going through something and you think, well, let me, let's talk about your hope of the future. And people are like, hey, I want to be helped right now. But uh, you need to take a look at your future when you're going through something. Prophecy is now seen as a niche hobby among certain conspiracy-oriented individuals or groups. Very few think it's valuable to promote a healthy and holy spiritual heart. Uh, A lot of people have told me over the years, and probably you've had this too, they say, oh, our church doesn't even look at the book of the Revelation. No one can understand it, and there's so many weird things in it that we, you know, we want to deal with practical things. Nothing is more practical than what's coming in our future and knowing where we will be in it or not in it. I ran across this quote in my reading. I really like this. It's a little bit long, but I think the the way he words this uh, really ministers to us. This guy says that eschatology as religious doctrine about last things is faith in final resolution. It is the hope of believing people that the incompleteness of their present experience of God will be resolved. Their present thirst for God fulfilled. Their present need for release and salvation realized. It is faith in the resolution of the unresolved, in the tying up of all the loose ends that mar the life of the believer in the world. It is the expectation, despite uncertainty, that our choices and patterns of action in this present human life find lasting relevance in the retribution administered by a God who is good and wise and powerful. The expectation that God's provident action in history will be shown in the end to have a consistency and purposefulness that reflected his goodness. 
In other words, we want to know that it all means something and know that it can be explained to us by a loving, caring, omnipotent God. Bible prophecy is not impractical. We focus on what is coming in order to get through what is here. Now, the southern Jewish kingdom of Judah, they were besieged by the arrogant, aggressive Assyrian army. Isaiah comforts them by jumping ahead to what would occur centuries later, what hasn't yet occurred. And so verse 1, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. A better reading of verse 1 goes like this, thirsty deserts will be glad, barren lands will celebrate and blossom with flowers. Although God in his goodness allowed a great deal of beauty to survive Adam's sin, the transformation of the earth to a cursed desert is part of his just penalty for human sin. God's creation is groaning under this curse every single moment. That's why we have the devastation of Hillary all around us here. I don't know if you saw, but two small branches fell off of our tree. We had the city inspector come out. He thinks we're okay, that the tree itself is sound. We wouldn't meet here if it was dangerous. If Highway 58 survives the Great Tribulation, when you come down from Tehachapi and approach Mojave, you're going to see signs that say, Glad Desert Ahead. Everywhere along the road, there'll be a vista point from which you are surrounded by the beauty of the Lord's restorative work. He won't have recreated the planet. That comes later, but he's going to restore it. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. These three were what we would call vacation destinations. In the future earthly kingdom, everywhere you go will be breathtakingly beautiful, with the exception of Riverdale. <laughs> Some places just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to get beat up one day. <laughs> there are some incredible places on the earth. I want to say, man, imagine what that's going to look like in the future kingdom. But that would suggest that in my mortality, I can actually imagine what God might do. The Lord's restoration is going to have two things that are unique to his workmanship that I cannot fathom. The first is the glory of the Lord. While it is true that the heavens now declare the glory of the Lord... Uh, we ain't seen nothing yet. God's going to really, you know, shine that up, you might say. And the second thing is the excellency of our God. The earth and everything in it are suffering from the curse. Still, we can see from the single cell to the galaxies the meticulousness of his work. But it's going to pale compared to the attention to detail Jesus pays to in his kingdom restoration. And so we're in for a real treat from the master creator. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. We could draw an illustration of Joe or Jane Christian, noting on it the symptoms that Isaiah listed. Weak hands, if you're a believer, you're compared to a builder and a farmer and a steward, a soldier in the scripture. All of them involve hard, hard work, rather, with your hands. Uh, over time, your hands weaken. They suffer permanent damage. We automatically associate knees with kneeling to pray. 
even though I guess most of us do not kneel to pray very often, the easiest way to make a Christian feel awful is to ask them if they think they pray enough because either they don't or they're liars. Uh, those are the only two possibilities. And, and then do you, I can get it. I've seen it. You know, do, do you pray? Do you pray on your knees? Oh, well, no, it hurts. <laughs> but, you know, well, you can use a pad. But, so, but that's not Isaiah's point at all. We'll get to his point in a minute. Don't feel bad. I don't pray enough. You don't pray enough. Nobody prays enough, right? Except that you can be in constant contact with God. I like when Paul says he prays without ceasing. That's just the awareness of the Lord's presence all the time, right? Practice that. That's a cool thing. Now, there's certainly a lot in our surroundings to cause us to fear. It's gotten so bad that in many uh, municipalities, they're just legalizing crime uh, so that, you know, they don't have to worry about the statistics. Police in Oakland, California now suggest residents carry air horns to deter criminals. Right? Did you see that? (laughs) Give me your purse. Give me my air horn first. I'm trying to scare you. I think your, your iPhone has an air horn, doesn't it? Let's practice. Here, get your... No, never mind. The Lord's exhortation is to strengthen, make firm, be strong, don't fear. What I like about this is it's typical of this kind of exhortation. There's no instruction here how to do it. There's no plan. There are no steps. The Lord doesn't say, I've got a book for you. 40 days from now, you're going to come out a better Christian or 50 days or five minutes or whatever it would be. And so that can only mean one thing. We don't need instruction because there's a single step, and that is to simply obey the Lord. There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, that might help us gain a perspective on this. When the attack on the city of Gondor begins, the steward of Gondor, Denethor, who's losing his mind from Parkinson's, he shouts out, abandon your post, flee, flee for your lives. Remember that? And then he turns around, faces the camera, and Gandalf hits him in the face with his staff knocks him out, and then Gandalf says, prepare to battle, return to your posts. And then you see the faces of some of the soldiers of Gondor kind of in a, you know, what are we going to do mode, and then they obey Gandalf, even though it will likely cost them their lives. There was nothing to do but to obey or disobey. Later, Gandalf is going to encourage them again, saying, you are the soldiers of Gondor. And then he says, whatever comes through that gate, deal with it. And so the Lord says, uh, or Gandalf says, you know, hey, get, make it strong. You're a man of Gondor. And the Lord says the same thing to us. You're my soldier. You, you know, you're a builder, you're a farmer, you're a steward. Be who you are and make it strong. Live up to that. And, and normally you think, well, I can't do that. Well, I got to add that it is a process. Truth be told, most of the time I follow Denethor's advice. It really sounds good. You follow the Lord's advice sometimes. It's like, hey, this is scary. Denethor, he's my guy. Flee, flee for your life, you know. Uh, and, And so it's a process of learning that you can trust the Lord and that he will be there for you. Mostly because, and the truth is, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. We talk a lot about this here. Uh, you know, we're kind of off balance on it, I think, sometimes. Because, but I think the church in general has forgotten that the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, totally, fully lives in you. Not just part of him, not a piece of him, not his power only, but him as a person. He lives inside you. That's the power that rose Jesus from the dead. 
And so it ought to be able to help us with our day-to-day living. And the problem is we have this unredeemed flesh, this body of flesh that we're dragging around with us, and it has a propensity to sin. It's tempted by the world and the devil, our flesh is. And so we're struggling all the time between the flesh and the spirit, and we will until we put off this flesh, and mortal puts on immortality, either through death and resurrection or at the rapture of the church. But we're here to tell you, and I tell, this is what I tell myself, even as I'm failing, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And so, you know, maybe you come in, you go to see somebody for discipleship or counseling and you lay out what's going on in your life, what's happening in your life and what you need help for and all that. And then you look at them and say, what do you have to say about this? And here's what they should say. Strengthen, make firm, be strong, and do not fear. Go for it. Uh, There must be something more. What's the instruction? What's the plan? What's the, you know, where's the blueprint? Strengthen, make firm, be strong, and don't fear. Is there something you don't understand about that? Yeah, I can't do it. No, of course, nobody can do it, but you know who can? God, the Holy Spirit, can do it, and he can do it through you as you yield to him. And so that's what we're talking about. Now, during the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, I can see Isaiah going around the walls of Jerusalem into the tower saying, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And isn't isn't that just like our life? You're up in the tower. You know, you're you're behind the walls, but you see, there's the enemy. Nobody was fiercer than the Assyrians. I mean, they were a unique breed of killers. They had all kinds of ways of torturing you and, and uh, be, you know, just treating you like an animal. My favorite is that they would grab these giant hooks. Think, you know, a treble hook, you know, a fish hook, but a giant one. And they would hook through your jaw and drag you along back to, Assyria, to Nineveh as their slave. And that was if they left you alive if they didn't just flay you alive, you know, and all that. And so you're looking out over at the enemy, and Isaiah representing God says, now, come on, be strong, don't fear. It's me. And so that's where the Lord wants to bring us. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute will sing. (laughs) If you didn't know these words were about the future, and I asked you what they described, you'd think likely that it was Jesus in his first coming. He did all of those things as proof that he was Israel's Messiah. Despite all that he did and much more, the nation rejected him. Their rejection cannot affect God's unconditional promises to Israel. No one has replaced Israel. No one has superseded Israel. Israel's being disciplined right now, but God's going to bring them back into, well, he's brought them back into the land. He's going to bring more of them back into the land. And once the church is taken out, sometime after that, and the great tribulation begins, uh, God is going to deal directly with Israel. The Bible tells us in several places that all living Jews at the end of the tribulation will be saved. God will keep all of his promises to them. I cannot emphasize enough that we need to keep Israel and the church distinct. The future kingdom is another unique age. It will feature the healing of all handicaps and conditions. It says in verse 6, For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. 
The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. These things will happen. They're going to happen literally and physically and historically. Though you may draw analogies and illustrations for living from them, they're not allegorical or metaphorical. Jesus is coming. When? Well, maybe he'll wait another hour or day or month or year, maybe your lifetime. In any case, we need a strong ethic of suffering. At the same time we believe that the Lord could come at any moment, we need to have a strong ethic of suffering. Disease is as good an illustration as anything. A little background first. We mentioned that when Jesus was on the earth, he healed pretty much everyone from everything, even occasionally bringing a person back to life. It was to prove that he was the king of the long-promised kingdom. His approximately three and a half years of ministry were a unique time. Before he came, there were miracles of healing and folks raised from the dead, but not very often. After he's come, now in the church age, Jesus still heals, but not very often. We pray for healing, but the honest truth, if we're honest with each other, is that very few people get healed. We've seen people get healed, but very few. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's nobody's fault. It's the times in which we live. Because what the Bible teaches us about the church age is that God is made known and strengthened in our weakness. It's a tough lesson for us to learn. You would think God is going to be made strong when this person is raised from the dead or this person jumps out of their wheelchair or whatever it is. But we've learned from the Jews in the first century that you can have a whole generation of people and their leaders who care less about that kind of thing. And so God says, no, you know, during this time, until the kingdom comes back, you're going to be glorifying me in suffering. And people are going to scratch their head and say, how are you doing that? How are you meeting this suffering? And you're going to say, it's Jesus. It's the Lord. I'll let Martin Luther say it. In our sad condition, sometimes our only consolation is the expectancy of another life. Your only consolation. I visited people over the years who've gotten just the worst diagnoses possible. And, um, of course, we prayed for them to be healed. I mean, there's still gifts of healing. Jesus hasn't said he doesn't heal. We pray for healing. But, again, be honest. Most people are not going to get healed. And so a lot of times I go in right into it and I say, look, this is your diagnosis. You're going to die unless the Lord intervenes. Uh, So let's, let's pray for healing, but let's talk about where you're headed. And where you're headed, the Bible says, a grand entrance is going to be prepared for you. And so that's what I want, you know, people who are thinking about not, you know, flying all over the world looking for some miracle healing you know, searching the internet for what kind of herb concoction is going to destroy their cancer or whatever it is. But people who are thinking, hey, when I get to heaven, man, what's that? A grand entrance, that sounds amazing. Maybe I should gather my family. Maybe I should tell them about Jesus. I've got a captive audience now. What are they going to do? And things like that. So let's let's get ready to go home. That's what it's all about, right? Going home. I know some of you are young, well, all of you are young, and you think, Gene's just an old man, he's upset. You can see how upset he is, he calls people dumb. 
But, you know, uh, the expectancy of what's coming is really all you and I have. There's no guarantee we're going to get through life unscathed uh, without some horrible, and we all know people who've hor you know, had horrible things happen to them. We all are people who have horrible things going on. Uh, so let's be honest and joyful about the reality that we are a forever people that live for tomorrow. And let's abandon ourselves to just serving the Lord until that happens. We have an uh, abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that blind, deaf, lame, mute is more descriptive of the spiritual state of unbelievers here. While it would seem that a person in this condition can do nothing, several times in the scripture, such an unbelieving person is encouraged by Jesus to actually do something. Later in Isaiah, we're going to read, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, come and do what you can't come and do. What's all that about? It's about the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, opening a person's heart and mind to understand that they are a sinner, that you are a sinner in need of salvation, and to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. It's, you know, when Jesus says to somebody in, in the Gospels, rise up and walk, what happens in that moment, right? He's telling somebody to do something they cannot do and that they can do at the same time. And that's what happens when the gospel is preached, I believe. Are you dead in your trespasses and sins? Sure. Do you hear what the Holy Spirit is saying and do you know that you need new life? Absolutely. At that moment, you're dead and you're alive at the same time. Only you can dull yourself to the gospel year after year, time after time, rejecting the Lord until it's hard to hear in your heart of hearing. And so come to the Lord today if you're not a believer. Your only hope in this life is Jesus in the next. But remember what Charles Spurgeon said, don't look to your hope, look to Jesus, the source of your hope. Now, where to lead your highway, verses 8 through 10? In high school, I got into lots of trouble with Steve Kassler, mostly because his 1964 Chevy Malibu in original meadow green with a 327 and four on the floor really was the fastest car in the Tri-City area. We'd cruise E Street in San Bernardino looking for cars that were stupid enough to drag race him, and then we'd head over to Marshall Boulevard. In a sad irony, in 1993, Steve was killed in a car accident while driving at an excessive speed. He had the need for speed, for real. I mean, this kid, he'd get grounded, and his dad would have his car in an impound, impound lot, and he'd go get it somehow. And I mean, he just had to drive fast. He was the son of Richard Kassler, in the 1970s and 80s, everywhere you drove in Southern California, there was massive freeway construction. On the side of those ginormous water tankers was stenciled Kassler Corporation. They built most of the freeways in Southern California. Jesus is going to build a spectacular highway to Jerusalem. A highway shall be there, verse 8, and a road, and it shall be called the Highway of Holiness. Your Bible might say something else. It's like going over the grapevine or the ridge route or I-5 south. I mean, what is it? It's like I asked a guy for directions one time in Stockton. He goes, well, you're going to take the 99 to the Crosstown Freeway. I go, okay, well, what's the name of the Crosstown Freeway? It's the Crosstown Freeway. 
What's the number of the, that's, that's, that's the, I said, man, every city that has highways has a crosstown freeway. There's a crosstown freeway in San Bernardino, but it also is interstate whatever, you know, and stuff. So anyway, I had to figure it out for myself. And days before GPS, I mean, man, you don't know how easy you have it. I used to, used to have to go to school and back without GPS. <laughs> Jesus is going to build this highway. Some commentators say that the highway of holiness doesn't need to be a real highway. That it's a, you know, a way of saying that he'll smooth out the obstacles and you'll be able to get there. People from every corner of the globe are going to make a physical pilgrimage to the Lord in Jerusalem and in the future kingdom. There have to be roads or pathways for getting there. uh, And they're going to link up with wherever this highway to holiness starts. The expression, all roads lead to Rome, was kind of true. The Romans built 50,000 miles of hard-surfaced highways that extended from Britain to the Tigris-Euphrates River system and from the Danube River to Spain and northern Africa. That's about the amount of paved road you'll find in the state of Maine. So what do you think? High-speed rail on that road? Monorail? People mover? Probably too slow. Self-driving Tesla, Uber, hey, I, I'm going to Jerusalem, you going my way? We don't know even that there will be vehicles, but there's going to be a road to get into Jerusalem. In this context, holiness simply describes a believer. There isn't a standard of holiness that you have to hit before you can go up the on-ramp. They're not going to wand you and say, oh, I'm sorry, there's, this is the sin wand, and uh, you've got, you're hiding some sin. If you're a believer, you're holy, you're set apart for the Lord. Unbelievers won't have the same access. You know what that means? We're going to know the difference between believers and unbelievers. Now, it'll be kind of obvious with us because we will be in our shining, glorified bodies. But there are going to be human beings, remember, in the uh, kingdom, and we're going to be able to know who's who. The closest thing we can come to that right now is uh, uh, sometimes at the funerals we do. Gino did this just the other day. Instead of giving an altar call and have people raise their hands if they want to know Jesus... We ask believers to raise their hand if they know Jesus, and then you can see who's not a Christian uh, or who's a liar. Uh, you know, so, but, and it's amazing. It, people are really honest. The last funeral I was at, um, you know, Gino asked, and a lot of people around me kept their hands down, and I thought, wow, these people, at least they know they need Jesus Christ, right? And so that's, it's just interesting to me that we'll know for sure who's not a believer. Who are the fools? Paraphrased version of this says, those who go on it will not be turned out of the way by the foolish. In other words, nobody's going to be having road rage on the highway to holiness or going below the speed limit or, you know, causing problems, whatever that means. No traffic jams. Verse 9, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Travel was mostly by foot in those days, and it was extraordinarily dangerous. I saw a map the other day of um, one of those maps where they show you how many habitats of lions there were in, the, in the, that time and how it is now. The entire Mideast region was filled with lions, uh, and, and they were very, very aggressive and dangerous, and you didn't really have anything to defend yourself with as you were traveling by foot. And so, but in the future, uh, in the millennium, we know that the animals are going to be calm, They're going to be uh, fruitarians or vegetarians, not carnivores. They're going to want to play with your kids. Oh, here comes that panther again. 
hopefully their tongue will not have those barbs on it as they're licking you. But uh, so, you know, so it's, it's great. You may not think much of this, but if you're traveling in, the old, in these times, you think, wow, that would be so nice not to have to worry about a lion eating my face off while I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Verse 10, and the ransom of the Lord shall return. Come to Zion, Jerusalem, with singing. With everlasting joy in their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah's immediate audience was exclusively Jewish. The ransomed of the Lord are Jews who believe God and receive Jesus. Only Jews can be described really as returning to Jerusalem. Most of us, I mean, even if we visited Jerusalem, you wouldn't say, oh, you're returning to Jerusalem as if it were your home. It's not. Now, Gentiles are going to come too, but just remember, the Gentile nations are distinct from Israel. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's a promise to every citizen of the millennial kingdom. I don't know about you, but I can't wait until there's no sorrow and no reason to sigh. The God of all comfort comforts by directing your heart to consider the future. The believers in the church in Thessalonica were expecting Jesus to come for them at any moment. As they waited, some of them died. The living were then grieving. How did the Apostle Paul comfort them? He gave them additional prophetic insight regarding the pre-tribulation, resurrection, and rapture of the church. Hey, guys, you don't have to worry about your loved ones missing out on anything. In fact, if they're dead, they'll be resurrected milliseconds before we'll be raptured. And we will all be united. You're going to see this person again if they died in the Lord. Can you think too much upon the future promises of God? Not really. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I have discovered that the people who believe most strongly in the next life do the most good in the present one. The Lord's coming, he says, with vengeance and recompense. Vengeance has to do with judgment, great tribulation. Then after the millennium, there's going to be a judgment the great white throne where unbelievers appear before the Lord to be judged. Since they don't have Jesus to represent them, they never received him. He never took away their sins. They're going to be uh, committed to and confined to a lake of fire where they will suffer an eternity of conscious torment. But he's coming with recompense or rewards for believers. J.C. Ryle says, Let us remember there is one who daily records all that we do for him and sees more beauty in his servants' work than his servants do themselves. And then shall his faithful witnesses discover, to their wonder and surprise, that there never was a word spoken on their master's behalf which does not receive his reward. 